Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, everyone. Today's topic is take this job and shove it. All about burnout. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Ben, I've definitely felt that way a few times uh, in my life. So um, we're going to be talking about what the heck is burnout anyway, right? What does the literature mm-hmm. say and, and what do we know from the research? How to recognize if you yourself or others around you are burned out and what you can do about it. And not only you as an individual, but what organizations can do about it, which I think is what we really want to do and and where we want to get to, Ben. So I guess let's start off. What is burnout? Sure. So burnout is uh, a concept. It's this construct that we, we know from psychological research that has to do with the workplace and stress at work. And the primary research in this area comes from a a professor, a psychologist named Christina Maslach, and she developed uh, many years ago, many decades ago, she developed a, an instrument called the Maslach Burnout in- Inventory, or the MBI, uh, which is a series of survey items designed to assess burnout uh, for a person. And the research in developing that measure of burnout, as well as subsequent research since then, has kind of coalesced around this idea that there are a few different pieces of this idea that we call burnout. But overall, what we could call burnout is it's this overwhelming feeling of exhaustion and cynicism and detachment from the job. And those are all kind of important pieces here that we'll unpack a little bit. So, you know, there are two primary facets of this. The first one is emotional exhaustion, right? So have you ever felt emotionally exhausted in your work? Oh, yeah. Every every time I come on this podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right. So this is where you're, you're feeling very drained. You're feeling like you've kind of given all that you can give. And it starts to bleed into the, some idea, some thoughts around apathy and so forth, that you don't care as much. The other facet, so emotional exhaustion, the other one is what we call depersonalization, where you're kind of separating yourself from either your clients or the people you're working with, the, the, the source of your burnout, and you're, you're kind of seeing it as something that's detached from you, right? You're, not, right. Uh, you're starting to uh, pull away from the work in some ways. Now, there's, there's a third facet, and that's the idea that you have kind of this reduced sense of personal accomplishment, that you, are, that you have this feeling of inefficacy, where you're, you're not uh, performing at a level where you think you should be performing, you're unsatisfied with your own performance. So this is kind of an ugly thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, you see that reduced personal accomplishment and people that really give a rip about what what they do in life and, and they just can't get there, right? Because of the environment or, or some other compacting factor, right? Right, right. And, you know, a lot of the research on burnout and some of the areas in which we see a lot of burnout or more more burnout than others are oftentimes uh, areas in which, or occupations in which people are dealing directly with other people. And, you know, you see a lot of caregivers, for example, uh, dealing with burnout and so forth. 
but I think we can also get an even better idea of what burnout is if we look at some of, you know, just a sampling of some of the actual survey or questionnaire items that we use to measure burnout. Uh, because I think it is important to be specific about what we're talking about when we talk about burnout. It, it is different from some of these other things that, that can happen at work. It's not just kind of generalized stress, right? Uh, so if we look at the, the first piece, that emotional exhaustion piece. So, you know, if you would answer strongly agree to some of these items, I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll just have a couple of them. If, you, if you'd say strongly agree to these, then this is an indication that perhaps you would be uh, feeling emotionally exhausted, that you'd be experiencing some of those symptoms of burnout. So, you know, I feel emotionally drained from my work. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've, I, we've all been there. Right, right. I feel used up at the end of the workday. <laughs> you know? I feel fatigued when I get up in the morning and have to face another day on the job. Uh, I feel frustrated by, by, by my job. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, right? So these are the, these, this idea of emotional exhaustion that can come from uh, our work. And, and it's, it's unfortunate. It really is. Uh, you know, I think we've, many people are probably there at d- different points in their careers, um, but uh, it's definitely an unpleasant feeling. Right, and, and it's not sustainable for you as an individual, and, it, and it's not good. Uh, for organizations to have a a bunch of people walking around that that are burnt out, it's it's bad for your brand. I mean, there's just a whole soup of horribleness that that goes on with this, and and these are from the MBI that, and we will put a show note and post a link so you guys can mm-hmm. go take a look at this survey yourself. But right, um, right. Ben, let's get, let's go. So that's that's all under the emotional exhaustion. Let's talk about the depersonalization. Sure. So like I mentioned, a lot of burnout research and people who experience this specific thing that we're calling burnout um, have to do with people who are uh, caregivers or people who are dealing with other people. Uh, It is kind of people-related work. So deeper personalization, and I'll read some of these uh, survey items, are, are really about detaching yourself from them. So for example, I feel I treat some recipients, and this would be like recipients of your work, recipients as if they were impersonal objects, you know, becoming more callous toward people. Uh, I worry that this job is hardening me emotionally, or I, I feel recipients blame me for some of their problems, right? right? So, you know, you could see this among people perhaps working in retail environments, you could see this, uh, you know, certainly we'll talk more about, you know, healthcare. Uh, it certainly is a problem. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's when you're dealing with people and uh, you're, you've given all, you, you, you feel like you've given so much emotionally, so you have this emotional exhaustion piece. And then really it's kind of your own psychological coping mechanism in a way to start to try to distance yourself from, from who they are. But this is, this is tricky because you probably got into that business because you wanted to help them. And we'll talk more about that too, because that creates this really tough paradox in, in your mind, right? Yeah, we, the depersonalization thing is, you know, there's like an infinite amount of stimulus that we can face or run into on this planet in this universe, but there's only a finite amount of physiological and psychological response that we have, right? There's way more mm-hmm. different stimulus. So you know, when I think about the depersonalization, I think a lot about the research related to mobs, you know, mm. when 
when there's a mob forming, you know, it may start off with, you know, Ben, Ben, but then the language starts to change to you, you, and then, you know, before the mob goes into full riot mode, all of a sudden the person or persons on receiving end have gone from individuals to being a depersonalized mass or mm-hmm. some of the research that we have actually in the military about what it takes to get somebody to kill somebody. Um, mm. You see a lot of those depersonalization things. And and these are psychological preservation measures that you'd say, oh, okay, well, maybe it's not so bad that you've become a little bit more callous towards people. Uh, if you're a young person in the workplace, you're like, oh, well, maybe this is just growing up, right? And, and mm-hmm. dealing with stuff. But actually that depersonalization doesn't allow you to be your full self. And right. uh, that's not good for your psychology. Um, so if you start to see those elements of depersonalization, you know, you may not be over to the dark side yet, but it's it's a warning flag um, that you should be aware of. Right, right. And so the third facet of uh, burnout, you know, so we talked about emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. The other one is what we call personal accomplishment or the sense of a loss of your own self-efficacy. So this is, you know, uh, things like, you know, not feeling very energetic, um, not feeling like you are positively influencing other people through your work, uh, not feeling like you can effectively deal with the problems that, that you face in terms of, you know, those people who are coming to you for help. And so you're feeling like, you know, you're trying, but you just aren't re- re- reaching your own standards. And, you know, that, that just, again, kind of feeds into this whole idea of I'm not doing my best work. I'm uh, emotionally exhausted. I'm starting to become more callous towards the people around me. And so, you know, this, this kind of, these three facets really combine to create this thing that we call burnout. Right. You know, this is, I guess we would joke in the army. It was like, I might gave a rip or I might give a rip broke. And, <laughs> and that's, that starts to be that part of burnout. You know, right. if you're in a certain uh, mission or have certain constraints where you're just not able to give your absolute best to something and it eats you up. Now, uh, some people, you know, can, they don't care so much about that. And and that's fine. You know, if, if your job is to, I don't know. I can't think of an example. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up with an example of something I would find soul-sucking, and somebody else will be—that'll be their favorite job ever. So I don't want to criticize any specific job. But, so, you know, some people don't need a big sense of personal accomplishment from their role. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may not be a big factor for them. But a lot of people have that as a big driver for them. And if it is and it's important to you to feel a sense of personal accomplishment uh, related to your work, well, here's a good example. I live in Park City, Utah right now, and there's a lot of Olympians. And Mm -hmm. what they really care about right now or at any time is just training for the Olympics. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but we don't actually fund our Olympians. They have to self-fund their training and stuff like that. So... You know, a lot of them are working, you know, part-time at Home Depot and 10 people to a house. And the rest of the time, they're just running or speed skating or, or training. So they may be, might be looking for something different from their work because their real right. work is that personal accomplishment piece. So 
don't don't feel bad if if you say, well, you know, I'm not really plugged into my job, but it doesn't bother me. That's okay. But Mm -hmm. for those that really have to have that sense of accomplishment from their work, you know, be watching out for that. Your give a rip breaking and that being negative for your personal health. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually see a, a decent amount of burnout in nonprofits. So, you know, people who are, because these are very mission-driven organizations, usually, at least they better be if they want tax-exempt status. Um, so they, uh, you know, are, are well, very they better be for their mission, right? I mean, that's right. really, really and, the end of it, right? And usually some aspect of their mission has to do with helping other people or, or helping some cause. And sometimes people will dive into things and just be going too hard, too fast, and just start giving themselves way too much. And it really can lead to this uh, this negative outcome of burnout. So you want to be watching for that as a leader. We'll talk more about kind of things that you can do as an organization to, to watch out for these things in a little bit. But uh, I think we can su- suffice it to say that burnout is not a good thing. It's, you know, this idea of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a loss of a sense of personal accomplishment. Uh, so... I think we can probably move on from defining burnout to talking a little about a little bit about the outcomes of burnout. Ooh. Sound good? Yeah. So the, <laughs> the outcomes are really bad, and I think, and I I guess this is a bit of commentary on the modern workplace. I think everybody knows what burnout is that has lived a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, job performance tanks. It you know it goes to horrible. You know you have good, talented people that you spent all this time recruiting. You've got a valuable mission for your nonprofit, or you've got a valuable mission that adds value in the marketplace. And you've got all these wonderful people in a big cohort, and their job performance is stinking because mm-hmm. burnout is killing your productivity and your creativity and a whole host mm-hmm. of things. If a competitor can figure out how to accomplish the same thing with less burnout, they're probably going to get a velocity that's going to be hard to catch up to. Um, that's right. This, the second thing is health outcomes. Stress, all of this kind of stuff. Been, like, uh, What about some of that research about talking about stress based on where you are within the organization? That's great. So there are some there's some really interesting research looking at uh, where you sit in a hierarchy and how it relates to some stress and strain uh, types of outcomes. So when we talk, by the way, when we talk about strain, strain has to do with those outcomes of stress or those things that we experience. It could be headaches. It could be staying awake at night. And it could be uh, you know indigestion. All those types of uh, health outcomes. Those could be things related to strain. But, but this is interesting research um, from what's called the Whitehall studies, right? Uh, looking at the National Health Service over in Great Britain. And you know there they have kind of this perfect system for studying this because they have uh, all these different jobs that are very precisely codified in terms of hierarchy and position and level. And then they also all everyone uses the same health care, so that's kind of controlled for that everyone has the same health service um, there because they have na- nationalized health care. And so what they what they've done is they looked at this over time, and what they find is that the people at the lower levels uh, repeatedly, you know, have much more uh, negative outcomes related to stress, M- many more negative health outcomes, um, and you know this is definitely a, a problematic thing, right? Uh, people at the top of the hierarchy tend to 
not have as many of these stress outcomes, even though that they have more responsibility and so forth. And part of that, um, you know, is that part a big part of stress and a big part of well, burnout to some degree is this feeling that you are being taxed beyond your own resources, you know? So you have a certain set of resources personally, maybe organizationally available to you to get your work done. But when the demands of your environment go beyond that of your own ability and start to tax your resources beyond what you have, then you can really start to feel this thing we call stress and these outcomes we call strain. Uh, and so, you know, the higher you are in an organization, you oftentimes uh, have more control over resources, more control over your work. And so that can sometimes mitigate, um, you know, some of the stress that you may feel. So I think an implication there is that if you're higher up in an organization, you need to be really careful about how you may be creating stress for people uh, who are working in layers below you in the organization. And this definitely can happen unintentionally. Yeah, and the, uh, so, the health outcomes, like, so in, in that study, they could measure actually physiologically what's going on inside people based on where they are in the organization. And a big part of that is, do they have any control, you know? So if, you, mm-hmm. if you're a call center work, worker um, for, I don't know, Dell computers or something like that, uh, you're, you're <laughs> would you would you know would you know something about that, Chris? Yes, uh, one of my early early career, gosh, a long time ago, jobs was answering phone for Dell. So when I'm answering phone for Dell, I'm you know, thank you for calling into Dell. Uh, what computer can I build for you today? Uh, that's my job over and over and over. Is it my job to worry about how many calls I take in a day? No, it's my job to take as many or the manager is going to get me. So I had no autonomy. Um, Learned a whole lot about large enterprise organizations at that point. But burnout was uh, common for people that did not have certain control um, at that level in their career uh, across Mm -hmm. any industry, really, Um, depending on how well the organization does at managing and recognizing burnout um, and building their staffing models around around that kind of stuff. Right, right. So we've talked about, you know, some of these outcomes of burnout being your job performance. So it's definitely something that the organization should care about. And then your health, which organizations should care about, but it also certainly impacts you individually. Uh, but there are some specific work situations that can lead to burnout that the research tells us that will make the conditions such that burnout is more common. So why don't we go through a couple of those? What do you say? Sounds good, Ben. Um, we kind of covered the job characteristics, right? Overload just, and time pressure. You just got too much and too little time and no no ability to control that. Um, role conflict, role ambiguity. You know, this is a right. big one in organizations that we go into. You know, when we start, you know, we may do like a broader survey, but then we start doing those in-person interviews and, you know... you. You'll have people that's like, I'm expected to do all of this stuff, but none of it's been defined. And, you know, mm-hmm. none of it was in the job description I signed up for when I came here. But, you know, now I've, I've got kids at home and, you know, it's, it's busy season. My grandma's living with us. I don't have time to search for another job, you know. So role conflict, role ambiguity. I don't know if I'm going to get fired or not because I don't even know what I'm fully supposed to be doing. I just know I get yelled at a lot. You'll see that kind of stuff, (laughs) right? 
Uh, right, right. And, and then the last one under job characteristics is a lack of social support. And mm-hmm. that can be both within the organization, you know, you can suffer through a lot. You know, I know, like in the Army is a great example. It's like, ugh, we got to stay up so late and do all this work with like low resource, but we're doing it together. And there's this like shared camaraderie there that because you're supporting the person to your left and right. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're in an organization or role and you don't have somebody supporting you to the left or the right, maybe you've been uh, isolated because of your place on the org chart or just even the location of your office, you know, that that can really lead to burnout because you know, we are social creatures. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's one of the strongest findings from all the research on stress and strain is that you know, having social support is really important. And, you know, it it can help us when we, you know, when we have some sort of stressful experience or a lot of stressors in our lives, uh, we have fewer outcomes usually if we do have some social support that's helping us. And that can either come from, as you mentioned, within the organization, having a great team who's, you know, embracing the, uh, embracing the tough situation together with you, or it could come from other aspects of your life. You know, there could be other friends you have, other social networks in which you're a part that really give you some outlet for for venting and for support and for just a sense that, hey, everything is going to be okay. So becoming isolated and not having social support is is really dangerous, especially when you start to experience some of these uh, conditions that lead to burnout. So social support, definitely important. So those are some good things about kind of the job characteristics and things about the job itself and so forth. Uh, but then there are also these characteristics of the occupation. And we alluded to these a little bit earlier, uh, but there are some distinct emotional challenges that can come from jobs in which you are continually working intensely with other humans, you know? So the, our, our whole purpose here in this podcast and our work is it's all about helping people flourish at, at work and beyond. And the thing is, is that sometimes we can create stress for each other and right. working intensely, you know, being a caregiver, being in a uh, teaching role, these types of things, this people work oftentimes can, uh, can create the situation in which burnout is actually more common. Yeah. You'll, you'll talk to people in these organizations and I don't know, I, it's surprising how many tears uh, I've seen you know, in the interviews that, that we've seen together, Ben, where, you know, yeah. so I just give and I give and I just can't give any more. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, and that, that kind, you can't live in that world of heartbreak forever. Um, right. so, so, but yeah, you can give too much or give away. And that leads to some of that depersonalization that we talked, talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can and so some examples of occupations, certainly healthcare. That's a, a really big one. Big and one. maybe we can yeah, so maybe we can talk a little bit about healthcare, but this you know, obviously this is a situation in which you are dealing intensely with other people. You have patients that you have to see, uh, patients whom you're trying to help. And uh, sometimes you are um, you know faced with some very difficult situations. You have patients who uh, die despite your best efforts. You have patients who don't do what you tell them to do and, you know, create their own problems. Um, you have uh, all kinds of situations that can lead to, you know, creating this the conditions that are just ripe for burnout. 
Uh, and that's why, you know, a lot of people who I talk with, and there's a decent amount of literature out there talking about the real challenges of burnout in healthcare specifically. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one area. Uh, I've done actually some research that uh, is, is related to this and, uh, but is not in healthcare, but actually looking at um, people who work in animal shelters and people, you know, so there are these folks who really want to uh, get into a line of work where they can help animals, but then they have had to get in the unfortunate situation of having to euthanize animals. So that's part of their job. And that, that certainly is a very tough situation. So, um, you know, that, you know, they're not working with other people, but they're working with animals, other living creatures, and it can be very, uh, very tough for them to deal with, uh, emotionally. So, you know, these are definitely some occupational characteristics, um, you know, that kind of create these conditions uh, when it's more people-related work. I think we could also point to other types of occupations in which you're interfacing with the public, you know, certain types of retail situations, even as you were mentioning, the uh, call center type work, because there you're dealing with the public, trying to deal with their problems all the time. I'm sure that most of those people who called you, you know, some of them maybe were appreciative of your work, but, you know, some of them perhaps were, were not the kindest people in the world. And uh, it can really start to create the conditions in which you're feeling burned out. Well, so, well, if, yeah. And then like in a call center, you just have to hit so many calls an hour type thing. So gosh. you'd love to feel empowered to just go the distance for people. And you can, but then you have to watch out. How does that impact your metrics to really mm-hmm. solve the problem? Now, the best call centers will, will have ways of managing that. But some of the not so good ones do less well. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty good on the occupational stuff. Let's talk about the organizational characteristics. You know, one of these that is most uh, impactful is this what we call psychological contract violations. So yeah. Ben, when when a organization is a contract violator, what what <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about here? Well, so we're talking about something that is not necessarily about the explicit contract that you may have with an organization. So, you know, if you have an employment contract, that's one thing. That's a written document and so forth. Right. A psychological contract has to do with, you know, the the perceptions that you have upon joining an organization about the terms and conditions of your employment, about, you know, kind of what you're going to be giving to the organization, what you're going to be getting in return in terms of uh, recognition and support and those types of things. And when there is a violation of those expectations, it really hurts our, our sense of fairness. We feel like, gosh, you know, this, I'm just being treated unjustly, uh, and it, it, it hurts, and we don't like it. And it, it can cause us to start to then kind of withdraw from our jobs to some degree. We start to depersonalize to some extent. We start to maybe feel a little bit emotionally exhausted and can certainly contribute to this idea of burnout. Yeah, if you have options, you leave at this point, right? Yeah, hey, I was hired. Absolutely. I was hired for this jack wagon and I'm doing this. And mm-hmm. you know, th- those kinds of things, you're definitely looking to shape shape that environment and it also tells you a lot about the organization if they are if that is a norm for them. Right. And so sometimes you come across this in which organizations kind of sugarcoat everything in the recruiting process and or they just kind of blatantly lie about stuff uh and you know you uh 
this is why it's so important to have what we call a realistic job preview for folks who are going to be joining your organization. You know, you need to let people know what the good things are about working here, but also let them know what the challenges are. Here's the thing. They're going to find out anyway, <laughs> and it's better for them to know about it up front than uh, to, to join your organization, go through the orientation process, right, and then find out because then they're going to feel like they were treated unfairly. So I think, you know, people like to be treated with honesty. People know that not every job is all puppies and rainbows. So you need to be honest. Having that realistic job preview for, for people, telling them about not only the good things, but also some of the challenges associated with the role, that can, that can really start to uh, alleviate the possibility of a psychological contract violation down the road. Right. Which, which leads us into our next thing, which is perceived organizational support, which is one of the pillars of IO Psych, really, um, mm -hmm. as far as main themes that, that happen in organization. And, you know, that's pretty much where em employees believe that the organization values what they do there, right? Mm -hmm. And then on, and on top of that, that, that they care about their person even outside of work, um, all those kinds of things. If you don't perceive that your organization supports you, then your ability to plug in and have a, a psychological health and all that kind of stuff, it's really impacted. And, and we talk about this all the time, Ben. You can't fake this stuff. If you're an mm -hmm. executive saying, you know, what's the minimum? Okay, so we've got this burnout matrix. We know people quit when they hit a level six burnout. So we want all our managers to be trending at a 5.8 and <laughs> and and uh, well HR could you could you tell us what what's the minimum stuff we have to do this year to have dupe our employees into feeling supported yeah you're not, you're That's... not duping anybody you right. your employees know and we've gone in and done these surveys and talked to people they know that you're a big old jerk that doesn't give a rip. And they may be stuck there for a vi variety of structural things, but if something changes, they're out of there, you know? Yep. Yes, that, that, that is well said. And I think your point about, uh, you know, you can't fake this stuff is a really important one because people will see through that inauthenticity. You know, it, you can say as an organization that we care about your well-being all day long, but if you never show that, through either your policies, your procedures, just how you treat people, how you talk about people, uh, these basic leadership things, then guess what? It, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do as an organization. You got and, what's and what's interesting here psychologically is that when we feel like our organizations are caring about our well-being and valuing our contributions, a couple things happen. One, we feel obligated to reciprocate back to the organization in terms of our loyalty, in terms of our performance. And that's one thing. But there's another thing that's more related to burnout here in which, you know, that uh, function in which the organization is uh, caring about our well-being, you know, uh, valuing our contributions, it actually can fulfill some of those socio-emotional needs that we have as humans. You know, we spend so much time at work you know, our whole purpose here, Chris, you know, is about flourishing at work and beyond. And, and the workplace is a place where we spend so much of our waking time, you know, and it's a place where we 
you know, need to have our socio-emotional needs met if we're going to have a flourishing life. Right, and there's and so, structural things. Not all of us are trust fund kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you actually have to go to work. And, and that's, that's one of those things. It's like some of these organizations don't have to evolve and be worth a darn in regards to personal well-being because they've got, you know, people have to show up there and do a job. Mm-hmm. Or they may be one of the only two main employers in a small town. Or, you know, there's there's all these items that, that just has to. And so if you find yourself um, stuck somewhere, you can use these things, you know, to start to choose and start navigating your life. Like maybe it's time to make a move, if you can, to another town. But, you know, right. that brings us to some individual factors around burnout. Like the the, the data shows that younger people experience more burnout than than older people. Mm-hmm. And some of that could be related to uh, just sort of just new to the workplace. Um, what are some of the other factors around age that, that contribute? Yeah, so so it's that's kind of a tricky one uh, because it could it could also just be the fact that, you know, only the people who are uh, not affected as much by burnout are the ones who kind of survive in the organization. You know, the, the, so it's the, the, the younger people are, who are experiencing a lot of this end up quitting. Um, but I think it, it could be, you know, this, this idea that you haven't really been through adversity before. And one thing we do know about, you know, interpersonal and uh, job-related adaptability is that if you've been through adversity before and you've made it through that successfully, then you're more apt to thrive in adversity in the future because you have some self-efficacy about it. You feel like you can do it. You've done it before. You can make it through another thing. And so if you haven't had those experiences, then it's harder to be resilient um, going through some tough times at work. So there could be an age factor here. I think even more importantly, there are some personality-related aspects of, uh, of people that can lead to um, more or less burnout. And there, you know, so there's some interesting ones. The, the, there's things like external locus of control. So there's this idea that, you know... Where, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's dive into that yeah, one. Yeah, so where, where you sense, you know, control is, is located in your life. For example, you know, uh, an external locus of control would be my, the dog ate my homework, Right, and, and it, it would be saying that anything that happens is externally driven. I can't control what's happening in my life, and I, I just kind of have to throw my hands up. I am a uh, a victim of circumstance. So having that that type of mentality, that external locus of control, can lead to more burnout because it's related to this idea that I can't control anything, and that is almost definitionally part of this idea of uh, of burnout. Um, having a more internal locus of control is more helpful. And, you know, it's the idea that you are in control of things and that you can have some impact on on your life and that you have some agency in how things happen around you. Uh, and, of course, it's not, it's not always true that you have control over everything, but I think a lot of times it's important to act as if you do, right, and to, to try to control what you can. Yeah, and some so, people just have a psychology that gives them a certain perspective, you know? Right. One of the important yes. things is to recognize in yourself and maybe people you manage and, and stuff like that, that that everybody's wired a little bit different. And 
some of those some of those pieces will in, impact burnout. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so another piece that in which people can wire, be wired differently is um, you know people who are low in emotional stability. Uh, you know they have more volatile emotions, uh, tend to experience more burnout. Um, you know, because a big piece of burnout is that emotional exhaustion piece. So when their emotions are, are all over the place, uh, or at least more so than others, um, then that can play into this whole thing as well. But I think the most important and most interesting personality-related characteristic that, that has something to do with, with burnout and with ideas of psychological resilience is this idea of hardiness. I love this concept. Right. Yeah, Ben. So the definition of uh, hardiness, what's a good one yeah. for our listeners? So one of, there's a researcher named Paul Bartone, and I believe he's still at the National Defense University. So he's done a lot of stuff related to the military. Uh, but, you know, he has an article in which he, he defines hardiness as a characteristic sense that life is meaningful. We choose our own futures and change is interesting and valuable. That's so good. It's, it's, it's kind of this different way of looking at life. And, and one of the ways I view younger age uh, issues related to these burnout, which I, I actually don't know if the, this is completely anecdotal. It's not necessarily supported by any literature that I'm directly familiar with, is like we were talking about their structural jobs that, you know, people that are older within an organization have probably found a place where they can kind of sit and have a good balance, right? But mm-hmm. when you're just coming out of college or high school and you're taking some of your first roles, you're most likely don't have that control. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's always roles within an organization that are kind of suboptimal, or they have a bit of a revolving door. They know that people aren't going to stay in them, but there's some, you know, dirty jobs that have to get done. Um, So when you come out of college or something like that, you, you're going to have to take one of these junior roles and you might just land in one that gives you no autonomy, um, not the amount of resources you would want or need and those kinds of items. And it's important to recognize that that's a time of your career where you can, you know, buckle down, sock away some cash, get a skill so you're not stuck there forever. Um, yep. And, and some of those items that are just kind of structural to where you are in the career path. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, for our younger listeners, I think there's also a sense of, hey, like, you just got to be patient a little bit sometimes and learn as much as you can and, and then move on. Uh, and so this idea of hardiness, though, is, is about making it through these tough times by remembering what's important and trying to find purpose and meaning in your own life. Um, because when you are doing something that has purpose and meaning, or you feel like you have purpose and meaning, then you can put up with a lot of other stuff. Uh, you know, I think one of the better examples, or at least the one that I always remember related to hardiness comes from, uh, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Great you know? book. And so great it is book. a great book. And so, you know, he was a, a Jewish psychiatrist, uh, who was imprisoned, um, during World War II at one of the concentration camps. And, uh, you know, he writes in his book, he, su- he survived, um, a number of his family members did not, uh, but he, he writes in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, about a number of things, but one being that, you know, how given his, you know, outlook on life and his purpose and what he was trying to do with himself, there were moments of not only, um, you know, times when they felt like he could make it within the camp, but even 
you know, he describes, for example, you know, beautiful sunrises and things like that, and moments of joy and beauty that that he could find even in this absolutely despicable, horrible uh, environment um, because of this sense of purpose and meaning. And you know, I think the the big idea here is that you're not going to be happy in life or in work all the time, and that I think chasing happiness as an end in and of itself is actually fairly foolhardy. Um, what's what's better is to chase purpose and meaning, and from that will come fulfillment and happiness. And so this idea of hardiness is that, you know, when we have that outlook, we can put up with a lot, and burnout will be much less likely. Right. Um, so I, I think that kind of covers some of these individual factors. I do want to bring up a related idea, and we'll just talk about this briefly, um, but this is the idea of what's called moral injury. So moral injury is this idea that, you know, you are being forced due to the nature of your job, your occupation, uh, your organization to do things that uh, either directly involve in in things or witness things that really transgress some of your deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. So there's been a lot of research on this from the military. um, This is like your animal shelter example. Yeah, so this is an example of, you know, animal shelter euthanasia technicians who joined that occupation because they really love animals, and yet they have to, on a periodic basis, you know, euthanize many of them. And this is what's called in another paper uh, that one of my colleagues wrote a number of years ago um, called The Caring Killing Paradox. Uh, And, you know, so I actually my first peer-reviewed paper um, was in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and it was looking at coping strategies for these people, how they would deal with that stress and that strain that, um, that was coming from, from their work. So when we're dealing with these, these, this paradox where we are, you know, we joined a profession because we really wanted to do something, um, noble, and yet we have to do things at a suboptimal level, you know, this is the the, kind of this idea of moral injury and it's related to maybe a little bit different from burnout. Um, but you can see this in healthcare, for example, if, you know, you really joined that profession because you wanted to, you know, help people, you wanted to uh, do good work and so forth, but you're being mired down in uh, administrivia or other types of things being, you know, pushed to a level of mediocrity that is unacceptable to you, that can really damage your own sense of your own uh, worth. It can, it can damage your own sense of um, your, your self-efficacy and so forth, you know. So it's kind of uh, this idea that in healthcare, for example, that you're trying to care people, but you're being overworked to the point of mediocrity. Uh, and that certainly is, you know, a related idea to burnout. Uh, it's, it's one that you know, we want to avoid in organizations, if at all possible. Absolutely. So we now know what burnout is and how awful it is. Um, so Ben, <laughs> so we really explored the piece about what is burnout, and that kind of stuff. So how do we recognize if we ourselves or others are burned out? What, what I would recommend is that there's a, um, some good tips from Christina Maslach and one of her co-authors, and we'll put a link up to this. It's from an article in the, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and it's an article called Reversing Burnout. And in that article, you know, it, she and her co-author talk about some different ways in which you can look at yourself and potentially you could use these to look at others as well to try to assess, hey, am I at risk for burnout, 
right? Right. And a um, big a big piece of this is if there's a mismatch in what's going on in your environment um, around several key features so, or uh, key categories, Ben, what are, what are those key categories? There's six of them. Right. So there are six categories of kind of aspects of your work. And the first is workload, then the control over your work, rewards, community, fairness, and values. So you can think about these different aspects and whether or not it's a, you know, a just right match with your own personal preferences and uh, work patterns and aspirations, whether, or if there's a mismatch there, or if there's a major mismatch, right? So maybe we'll just take one uh, item from each one of these to share with our listeners so they can get a sense for this. But so, for example, you know, I'll take the first one, then maybe you can take the, the next one. We'll just go back and forth. But, you know, in terms of workload, think about this. The amount of work to complete in a day, is that a just right match, a mismatch, or major mismatch with how you, uh, how you see your work? Yeah, right? and I like the mismatch terminology because it recognizes that, and every individual and manager needs to recognize that everybody is different. Some, mm-hmm. some people, if they're not slammed with work from the minute the doors open till closing time, that's not a good fit for them. They, they like to be hopping the whole time. Other people, you know, like some moments of reflection and, and those kinds of things. You know, maybe you're writing code and you need to think about, you know, something for a little bit. You know, so it depends. So not every role is right for every person, but whereas somebody may say, Hey, this amount of workload to compete co- to complete in a day is a major mismatch for me. It might be a perfect fit for somebody else, and that there's no personal failing there. It's just we're all different. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the next item would be like control, uh, my participation in decisions that affect my work. You know, is right. that just right or a major mismatch? Yeah. So we all have a kind of different need for autonomy in our work and our need to participate in decisions. Uh, and, you know, if, if we feel like we really, if we're of, of the type that we really want to have a lot of autonomy, we want to make decisions about things that relate to our work, and we're not able to do that, that can uh, start to lead to a condition in which we would be more predisposed to burnout. And so the next one is reward. So this is the recognition for achievements from your supervisor uh, you know, are you getting enough of that or is there a big mismatch there? And this ties directly into the idea of, you know, getting support from your from your organization, from your boss. Do they value your contributions? That's really important as well. Yeah. And an example from the community would be um, the frequency of supportive interactions at work or even the closeness of personal friendships at work. You know, is that just right yeah. or is that a major mismatch? Right. And, uh, you know, this is why having a toxic work culture or having a, uh, you know, a lot of incivility and harassment interpersonally within a team can really create a condition in which burnout will be more likely because then you won't have those opportunities for social support. You don't, that community has been broken and you won't have those supportive interactions. Uh, So that's why that's really important. Uh, you know, another one uh, is related to fairness, and this is, you know, an example would be manage, management's dedication to giving everyone equal consideration, you know, so not playing favorites and so forth like that. Uh, you know, is that a good, mis- good match for you or a, a major mismatch um, is something to consider? Yeah, absolutely. And values, uh, the potential of my work to contribute to the larger community 
or mm. my confidence that the organization's mission is meaningful. Right. That's really important. Um, you know, when we talk about job characteristics that make work satisfactory or uh, motivational, we oftentimes talk about task significance. You know, is what I'm doing contributing to something that makes a difference? And when when we are doing that, that can uh, certainly you know, to some degree, help keep us from getting burned out when we when we really believe that that's happening. But if there's not a good match, then uh, that can that can start to to lead to conditions in which burnout's more common. So the idea here is with this, um, you know, with these different ideas and this 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 rating scale, so to speak, is that if everything is a match across workload, control, reward, community, fairness, and values, then you've really found a good setting for your work that's going to help you flourish. Uh, and not burn out as frequently. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon though for there to be a couple mismatches. Um, usually, we can these can compensate for each other, or we're willing to tolerate things. But if there's a lot of mismatches, and especially some major ones in areas that are really critical for you, uh, this is a sign of a, a situation that might be intolerable for you, and you should be looking for a new situation to work. In addition to this burnout assessment, I think it's also just important to look at some of these different symptoms that you may have. So you may have some of these physical symptoms due to the stress of the situation, some of the you know, issues related to you know, not sleeping well, um, worrying about work a lot when you're away from work, conflict with your family that's due to the work situation, uh, you know, headaches, uh, you know, issues with digestion, all these types of things that can be related to stress. Um, also, if you're just feeling apathetic or you're feeling hopeless, that certainly can be a, an indication of burnout. Uh, if you're having a lot of uh, loss of enjoyment in the work, something that used to be enjoyable isn't enjoyable anymore and you're feeling really de detached from it. And also, if you're just no longer engaged with the people around you at work in terms of having those good social interactions, those can certainly be signs of burnout. And those are things to look out for not only in yourself, but also in others. But now, now let's... Let's throw them a lifeline, Ben. What are, what are some things, what can we do about it individually, and what can organizations do about it? So if you're an individual, sure. Ben, what, what should you be looking at here? Well, so I think, you know, as, a, as an individual in an organization, I think the first thing you can look at is uh, this idea of self-advocacy and sticking up for yourself. And, you know, trying to the best of your ability, and this is going to be hard depending on kind of your position in the organization, but trying to manage the workload that is being thrust upon you. You know, I talk frequently with, with students and others who are in positions where it's like they're just being thrown all this work, uh, maybe from different people. So no one other than them really understands how much work they have. Uh, and I think in those instances, you know, you have to start to... Uh, use your communication skills to stick up for yourself and be realistic about what is possible. Um, because if you, because you're, you are the only person who, or you, maybe not the only person, but you are the, the person with the most vested interest in looking out for you. Right. right. So you need to stick up for yourself, be realistic about what is possible. Talk to others about, Hey, you know, if you're assigning me all this other stuff, let me tell you about my other things I got going on. Which priority do you want me to take out of here? Right. Where do you want this to sit? So I think self-advocacy is important. Uh, it's also important since we talked about this idea of social support at work, you know, develop those networks of social support at work and, and even beyond work, uh, having friends, uh, around you having, or even if they're not friends, so to speak, people who understand what's going on with you that you can talk to about stuff, uh, that's important. You know, don't become some sort of Island within your organization, or if you kind of have become one, 
work to build bridges to either the, the mainland or, or to other islands, right, to other people within the organization. Uh, that can be really important for that sense of community, um, for the sense that we're all in this together. Uh, sometimes it can be really powerful just to, and helpful just to hear that other people are experiencing the same thing as you. You know, even if it doesn't change the reality of your your work, just knowing that other people are doing the same thing and that you're all kind of suffering the same way uh, actually can be really, really powerful. So develop those networks of social support. Uh, You know, I I think another thing is, you know, taking a little bit of soul searching and saying, hey, is this organization that I'm working for, does it really have a good match with my values? Are my values synonymous or at least close enough to what this organization cares about? Right. You know, is your... Yeah, Ben, I, I totally agree. It's like so much of my individual coaching work with executives involves unclear senses of values. You know, if you, if you don't have a clear sense of uh, what's right or wrong, what you value as an individual, you don't have a sale to kind of put up into the wind and guide you where you want to go. So reading that helps, uh, you know, get into the classics, read some health self-help books that are meaningful. Uh, If you're a religious person, get involved with your faith. You have to have something that will guide your values. And then once you have those values, you can start to match, hey, does what this organization that I'm involved with, is it a good use of my time, my limited time on this planet? When those are lined up, you're going to find your work fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, when those are lined up and you're a manager, you're going to be able to create fulfilling work for others, right? Um, right. When those aren't lined up, you're just kind of cast to the wind, uh, ship lost at sea. Uh, you're going to miss out on those those pieces. Right, right. Uh, you know, so kind of keeping on that theme of self-development and, and, you know, figuring out things for yourself, you know, I think learning some techniques around emotional regulation can be really helpful. And, you know, one thing that you and I have found helpful, not only for ourselves, but also for executives is, uh, you know, some of the ideas from the book, The Chimp Paradox, right? Yeah, Chimp Paradox was really good. And it was a book that was just kind of came, you know, we both read a lot and are in depth in the literature, but this one actually came uh, to me as a recommendation from an executive at an investment bank I worked at. And, you know, being able to manage our mind and get the performance we want out of our mind is a huge piece of our individual growth. That's where we develop our hardiness and resilience. That's mm-hmm. uh, how we identify what gives us meaning and purpose. And, and so we can move that direction in our lives. Uh, we are not machines as much as earlier management literature would want to make us into. You know, we're, right. we're not another brick in the wall, so to speak. And, and we need to realize that we have a human part of us that has certain needs. We, we can't just slog it through every day and maintain our, our mental health as we, as we move forward. That's right. That's right. You know, I also think that, you know, in terms of another thing you can do as a person is I do think it's important for us to note that, look, if you are experiencing burnout to a degree that is, uh, you know, extreme, that you're experiencing feelings of depression, uh, get some professional help, right? And I think this is particularly important for those people in those caregiving professions in healthcare, you know, just looking at some, some of the data around, for example, suicide in healthcare and among physicians, 
uh, it's quite a bit more than the the average population. And um, part of it is that there's this big stigma around um, getting help. Uh, you know, not you know, confidential uh, help is is not readily accessible. Uh, it's also you know something that people get asked about, you know, in terms of for, for boards and credentialing purposes, which is just crazy. Um, and so there's this incentive to just kind of suffer in silence. And so if you're experiencing this stuff to that degree, uh, get some professional help. I mean, we, most of us wouldn't think twice about, you know, going to the doctor if we broke our ankle. Uh, but for some reason, there seems to be some barriers for some folks to, um, to not seek help when they need it for something that's related to their mental health. So I do want to throw that caveat out there that, hey, you know, these types of things oftentimes can be very, um, can be closely correlated with depression and other types of health issues that do require some assistance from a professional and uh, get that help uh, right now if that's what you need. Yeah. And it's about living the life you want to live. Uh, We're not born with all the psychological skills that we need to survive this planet. You know, even in infancy, we start mirroring our parents and the people around us. All of these items uh, go into making a healthy, happy life. And these skills around emotional regulation. Also, how do you calibrate that you're seeing the world accurately? Therapy, Mm -hmm. self-development, these things are important. You would develop skills in software development or a whole host of technical skills that help you thrive in your job. This is an internal type of leadership that will help you navigate things. So don't neglect the internal. It's going to affect all the external. We are not uh, cogs in a machine. So so I think that's pretty good at the individual level, Ben. So yeah. let's talk well, about... Well, I think there's there's one other thing. I think that if if you if none of this is working or you know, you're stuck in some, a place that's not um, conducive to to your own flourishing, and you are able to look for other options, you may need to leave that organization. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's why it's very important to always be developing your skills, to be networking, so that you may have those options in case you need them, uh, so that you can go to a better organization that has better leaders. It is okay to leave a bad workplace. Uh, it, the organization will go on without you. Um, now, Keep in mind that the grass isn't always greener elsewhere, and you shouldn't just hop around from job to job thinking that everything's going to be better somewhere else. However, uh, if if the organization and, and the environment there is non-conducive to your uh, long-term uh, success, then you should be looking for options. Yeah, absolutely. That Great cap there, Ben. So, all right. So let's move to organizations. What what can we do as an organization if we actually have power within an organization and we can affect things and we give a rip about burnout? What are, what are we doing? Well, so first I think it's just really important to um, highlight that I think this stuff is actually more important. I don't want to say more important, but it's just as important. uh, And, and I think it's maybe even more important for us to emphasize this stuff than it is the individual stuff, because Sometimes organizations, if they're trying to deal with burnout issues with their staff and so forth, they will just recommend all of this individual stuff. They'll say, oh, well, you know, you guys can have a wellness day. Um, You know, we're going to do X, Y, here's X, Y, or Z. Here's like the employee assistance program that you can call for help. And those may be okay, but those are not fixing the system. And the system has to be fixed in order for there to be a long-term solution to this idea of burnout. And so, you know, speaking really directly to those people who are in positions of authority, particularly in these occupations and in these organizations that may be more predisposed to having burnout, 
hey, you need to lead the way by being a supportive leader. And that means, you know, listening to your people. It means uh, rewarding them when, when, the, when, it's necess- when, they're, uh, when it's warranted. It means valuing their contributions. It means actually caring about their well-being. That idea of uh, perceived organizational support is very important here. Right. You, you lead the way on these I- items. And, and part of that leading is ensuring that, that staff is trained around items of burnout. Both, mm-hmm. hey, individually, are you as a manager burned out those items? How do you get your mid-level managers to be able to recognize burnout in themselves and in others? And then organizational best practices related to minimizing burnout, such mm-hmm. as making sure that people in roles, that they find a good match between their preferences as far as you know surprises in those items and, and who they are as a person. Right, right. And you know, if you're sitting there as an executive thinking, oh, this is just kind of touchy-feely stuff or whatever... Remember that one of the big outcomes of burnout is decreased job performance. So there's a very easy business case here for reducing burnout. You want people to perform well. You also don't want them to quit, right? It takes a a lot of time and money to get people into your organization, get good people into your organization. So you want them to stick around. Uh, So this is, there there are hard dollars associated with this stuff, even though we're talking about psychology and feelings and stuff like that. Um, I think it's also important, you know, as a leader to try to curate that work environment, that culture that is conducive for true human flourishing. It may be, you know, part of what you need to do in terms of, hey, reducing the work overload. You might need to actually get more staff. Now, I've been in almost every organization says they need more staff. Um but that may be true in some situations. You may need to get more staff. You may need to figure out uh, what some of the broken processes are so that you can fix them and make work um, much more seamless and easier for people. Uh, have clear definitions of what people are supposed to be doing. People like to know what success looks like in their job to try to reduce that, that role conflict, that role ambiguity, um, and, and also this whole idea of perceived organizational support as we talked about, you know, treating people fairly, uh, making sure that leaders and managers are showing people that they value their contributions and that they care about people's well-being. Very important stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And having a feedback mechanism or a way to sense what's going on around burnout in your org. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, whenever you're an executive level or even manager level, you always wonder, well, what's, what's going on with teams really or what, what's going on with people in the organization? You need to have a way for people to be able to give their perspective and highlight areas that need management intervention. So you may not think that this function is okay, but you know, if you had a feedback mechanism, you might be surprised to find that, wow, 90% of people are burned out over there for something that we could easily fix. Uh, you know, they just needed maybe some better tools or something like that. So you need to have a, you know, you have a sensing function outside your organization to tell when customer perspectives change and stuff like that. Having a sense of sensing mechanism within your organization is also really, really important. Right. And that sensing mechanism could be, for example, uh, something that you'd have on your um, periodic surveys in your organization. It could be simply having good listeners out there, having you know, your leaders and managers and everyone be on the lookout for certain things and talking about these, these different aspects of burnout so that they can start to raise the flag. If, hey, look, you know, 
this area of the organization, we got a lot of people who are really starting to uh, feel burned out. And here's what I'm noticing. So having that, that, rec- that ability to recognize and look out for certain things and raise that flag when necessary is very important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then I just want to mention other things as an organization or kind of as a system uh, with specific re- reference to healthcare. You know, th- there's some really powerful and, and shocking um, information about physician suicide, actually, uh, out there. You know, there's a, um, a doctor named Pamela Weibel who's written about this, and we'll put a link up to this in the notes. Um, talking about why, quote-unquote, happy doctors die by suicide. It's really, really sad. And, um, you know, part of the issue in healthcare, at least from her perspective, uh, is, you know, there's a lot of stigma, a lot of penalties associated with getting help for um, things related to mental health. So it can be really challenging if you're a physician, for example, if the medical boards and various credentialing bodies make you report um, getting mental health treatment, uh, and make it this thing where it's like, you know, they ask you if you're a, a pedophile, and then the next item, they ask you if you've received treatment for mental health issues. Like, grouping those things together is is really Horrible awful. Horrible idea. Uh, Horrible. It, yeah, it, it is, because it, you know, it, it really starts to create more of that stigma, and, and people are like, you know, I'm not going to report this, because I want to keep my job. I want to keep doing the thing that I'm supposed, that I'm trying to do here. You know, I may be... Uh, you know, up to my eyeballs in student loan debt, you know, relatively early in my career, et cetera. Uh, so that, that's a structural change that needs to happen. Another thing that she mentions is encouraging non-punitive and confidential care for, for physicians um, to, to receive that help. And of course, this would also apply, I would assume, to nurses and other types of healthcare providers. And then, you know, working to uh, reduce the stigma around this is sharing your story. Um, so sometimes, you know, when people talk about these things and say, hey, this happened to me as well, uh, it, it makes it okay to be human. Uh, it helps to reduce that sense of stigma around a certain issue. And this is very important with um, mental health issues. And I think we, we see this, at least, um, you know, I, I've seen this in the, the Navy, for example, um, on issues, for example, related to sexual assault. So, you know, they've been a big emphasis on reducing that. And, um you know, it's interesting because as they've been trying to reduce the stigma around it, you know, some of the uh, reporting numbers have actually gone up, which is actually what we would expect. You know, some people may say, oh, well, why is there more of this? Well, it, it may be just underreported before. It, right. It's just underreported before. So it is important to share the story, reduce the stigma and make it OK to be human. So uh, those are some things that you can do as an organization, as an occupation, as a system. And I hope that uh, this is helpful for especially those folks who are in senior leadership positions, because this is one of those things where you have a lot of power as a senior leader, as an executive to help create an organization in which people can flourish. And uh, if you're not doing some of these things, you may either intentionally or unintentionally be creating the conditions in which burnout may be very, um, very problematic. Yeah, excellent. So let's kind of wrap up and talk about, you know, kind of what we covered. So today we talked about what burnout is, how to recognize it in yourself and others, and what can be done about it, both at the individual level and organizational level. And I just also want to add that, you know, we talk about show notes and those items. If you'd like to access those show notes and download or check out some of these articles and videos that we post related to these topics for any of our podcast episodes, they can be found 
at indigotogether.com. Under the podcast tab, we've got each of our episodes listed out, and that, that's where you'll be able to find uh, these notes. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for that reminder, Chris. I think that's a wrap for today. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.